In, in other words, don't, don't think this is just about what you have inherited from your parents. I speak to a lot of people like this who are very well intentioned and I would ask them about their relationship with Jesus and they haven't settled this in themselves. They haven't had that moment where Christ locks eyes with them and asks them the question, who do you say that I am? In some ways, they're still trading off the faith of their parents or their parents' parents. And there's kind of a tradition that's been passed down, but it's not animated by a personal revelation, which we'll get to in just a second. And so this is the question that we face, guys. And it's the question that the Lord is asking you. Jesus looks at you, even as you listen to this. He looks you dead in the eye and he says to you, hey man, who do you say that I am? And, and, it, and because it's uncomfortable and, and confronting and, and because it's revealing, we can sometimes we can push it off, right? We can sort of deflect it and delay it for another time. But I want to suggest to you that this question is a ceiling to our journey with God. And until we face it, we won't be able to make progress past it to what lies on the other side. Welcome to the Follow-Up Podcast. A place for conversations and ideas on how we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. Follow is a community of learning and practice in the way of Jesus. And you can find out more about resources, events, and how to get involved by visiting www.wearefollower.com or finding us on your social media platform of choice. We hope you enjoyed this episode with your host, Matthew Lewis. Welcome back to the Follower Podcast and our current series called We Are Follower. With four episodes behind us uh, in this series, we've covered a lot of ground, right? We've looked at both the why and the what of follower. Uh, in other words, we've spoken about our desire to see people live into the fullness of life that Jesus offers. And we've noted that so many people who would call themselves Christians or even people who find themselves in the Christian faith uh, don't necessarily live into that fullness. And so that's the challenge before us. How do we serve the church? How do we become a people who are not only conceptually talking about the fullness of life that Jesus comes to offer us, but who are experiencing that fullness of life? That's the why behind follower. And then in terms of the what of follower, we've, we've spoken about how this happens in the context of a community of learning and practice in the way of Jesus. And if you haven't listened to all those episodes, I would just encourage you again, as I've been doing pretty much every episode of this series, go back, have a listen to the previous episodes. Reason being, every thought develops uh, from the last one. And so this is kind of part of a, an unfolding picture for the follower community. Uh, not only is this explaining to you what follower is, but I'm hoping that it's helping you in your own uh, transforming friendship with God. In this episode, we shift our focus from the what of follower to the who of follower. And what I mean by this is that we'll be exploring some of the distinctives of the follower community, the things that kind of make us us. And I'm going to do this by unpacking a phrase that sort of lies at the heart of the follower community. It frames our story and reminds us of who God has called us to be as a community. And that phrase is following Jesus to the depths of his heart and to the ends of the earth. 
I remember uh, the first time this phrase started to build up inside of me uh, and us as a community, I was actually uh, in a worship event and um, guys were worshiping and people, there was a beautiful sense of the spirit of God. And then there was uh, this, this phrase that people were using was like the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. And I felt like that was not only something that God was stirring up in the church at that time, but but something that uh, God wanted to stir up inside of us as a follower community, this idea of, of being being able to be willing and so surrendered that we would just go to the ends of the earth for him. And the more we explored that as a community, we realized we couldn't really go to the ends of the earth unless we went to the depths of his heart. And that really was the, the marking of the kind of following of Jesus that we wanted to lean into. And so kind of buried in these simple words are, are what you could call the four values of follower. And these values help us live from the heart, from places of deep meaning and um, and deep authenticity into this way of Jesus and to do that together. And it's important to know that because fo- follower is movemental in its understanding, in that we, we're not um, kind of centralized, we're decentralized, and we are, are hoping that God will use this work to bring all kinds of people from different backgrounds, different cultural spaces, different parts of the world, different churches around tables so that we can be strengthened by one another's following of Jesus. So because that's the case, um, we need just some core anchoring things that make us follower. And these these values would be that. Um, to stick with the analogy we've used in this series, if, if the why of follower is a seed, and the what of follower is a greenhouse, then the who of follower, the values of follower, is the kind of atmosphere that fills that greenhouse. Um, There are many communities of learning and practice in the way of Jesus around the world. Our our friends at 24-7 Prayer, some of you may be familiar with Renovare or Practicing the Way, John Markoba, uh, or the Transforming Center. Many groups of people uh, who are wanting to do the same thing. It's not a new idea we're going after here. In fact, it's it's quite an ancient idea, actually. We, We draw from a rich tradition of people who have walked Jesus' way over thousands of years. But as much as we're walking a common way, we're also walking it in a certain way. Um, So you'll know that you're at a follower table. You'll know that you're part of a follower gathering. You'll know that you're engaging in a follower resource uh, when the environment embodies our hopes uh, to see at least four things happen. Uh, For us to be a, a community centered on Jesus, uh, we follow Jesus. Uh, for us to be a community who, who is fully surrendered, we follow Jesus. <laughs> uh, for us to be a community who are called to intimacy, we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart. And to be a community uh, that is on mission with Jesus or missionally present in the world, we follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. And so those are the four ideas we're going to unpack in uh, the next four episodes as we look at the who of follower. In this episode, we'll explore the first of those values, uh, what it means to be Jesus-centered. We follow Jesus. (laughs) But, But first, before we jump into all of that, let's just slow down. Again, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take a moment, take a deep breath in. We don't want to just rush into these things. Um, apart from the awareness of the Jesus who is at the center of all these things. And we're going to open up with a a prayer in the form of a poem that is actually written by Kirsten Kelly and read by Amy Dinn, uh, who are both members of the Follower 
community. So let's just pray together. I lie on my back on a cool summer night, gazing at the stars, sensing your presence next to mine. Hearts entwine, the air is so cool. As the breeze gently blows, leaves chatter and chime. Singing praises to the one through whom all things were made, making a way for all things to be reconciled. Yet in the bright light of day, my heart starts to sway. The world starts to speak as your voice slips away. A heart once devoted in all of your grace begins to forget the one whose hand put each star in their place. Slowly, allowing you to be replaced by things of the world, promising everything, lying to my face. Lured by the charm of broken ambition, my eyes set on high places they were never meant to focus. Broken devotion, false gods occupying spaces they were never meant to fill. Then, I hear you whispering my name, calling me back to embrace the one through whom all things were made. Heart full of disappointment and tears, hands empty having tried it my way. I hear you whispering my name. I see your face. I lower my head in shame. I want to run as the sound of your feet walk my way. The warm touch of your hand under my chin makes my skin stand on edge. As you lift my head, in an instant remembrance floods my heart, reoccupying the place only you are meant to fill. I lie on my back. It's a beautiful summer day. The warmth of the sun shines down on my face. Your presence fills the spaces within and without. Breathing deeply, the fragrance of your beauty overwhelms my heart. And as the earth revolves around the sun, I hope my life will forever revolve around yours. So let's uh, kick off this conversation about being Jesus-centered. Um, I'm going to start with a reading from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13 through to 20. And then we're just going to unpack a few key ideas from this passage that help us understand what we mean when we talk about being Jesus-centered. Let's read together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So an interesting uh, conversation here happening between Jesus and his disciples. And uh, we really want to unpack what this means, or what this has to do at least with uh, us being a Jesus-centered community. And not just for follower, as always, as you listen to this, whether you're leaning in the direction of the follower community or not, uh, for you as a follower of Jesus, this is, an, this is a key principle for you uh, that we're going to get from this passage. So, so let's just start with the context, right? Um, when I look at this passage, I can see at least two things that we have in common with this, this context. I see opposition and I see confusion. So let's just start with opposition. Uh, the passage opens up by making a point to mention that Jesus was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, what's important to know about Caesarea Philippi is that it was the largest source of uh, water for the Jordan River uh, found at the base of Mount Hermon and kind of in the region of Galilee, right? And it had been a place of idol worship for a long time, uh, from the Old Testament, the worship of the Baals, and then as it progressed, it became a, a worship center for uh, Greek gods, uh, fertility gods, and then uh, most notably the god Pan. Uh, now, years later, when Rome conquered this, this city, uh, the Herod Philip, at the time, who was a Caesar, he rebuilt and named the city after himself, which is why it's Caesarea Philippi. Um, but the town itself continued to focus on uh, on this worship of of Greek gods, particularly this god Pan, which was was a fertility god. And in the mind of of the pagan worshippers of that time, this, there was a cave right there in Caesarea Philippi, uh, where the water flowed. And this cave was a gateway to the underworld in their mind. This was a place where uh, the fertility gods would come and live in the winter. And this particular cave was called the Gates of Hades, <laughs> or the Gates of Hell, the Gates to the Underworld. And in order to entice these gods, the people of the region would come and perform all kinds of uh, evil acts, particular, particularly sexually evil acts, um, because it was fertility gods. So, so basically imagine in our context a kind of um, uh, like a debaucherous type red light district experience in service and favor to these Greek gods of fertility, this god of Pan. And this is happening at the site, which is in Caesarea Philippi. And there is this cave there, which is called the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell, this doorway to the un underworld. Um, it brings a whole new light to when Jesus says the Gates of Hell will not prevail against his church. There's a link there, right? Again, with Scripture, think of it as like a double-clicking on the Internet. I think I've had this conversation with you guys before, but, you know, if I'm on a website and something's highlighted and I double-click that thing, it takes me to another space, another blog or another article that gives me, that is linked in some way to that thought. So the whole Bible is hyperlinked in that way. And whenever we're reading one thing, it's, it's usually, particularly if Jesus is speaking, linking us to something else uh, to give us deeper and fuller meaning. So it's no coincidence that when Jesus is talking about the church, and we'll get to that in a second, that he's talking about how the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Because it's likely if he was in the region of Caesarea Philippi and is using this language, it's likely he was in... Um, 
this area, this space uh, called the Gates of, of Hades, which was a pagan um, worship site. Okay, Why does this matter when it comes to the idea of putting Jesus at the center? Because our context uh, is not that different to the context that Jesus is speaking into right here. So we're going to unpack the conversation that Jesus has in just a second, but it's important to understand the context in which Jesus has that that conversation, right? Sometimes I think we get this picture of Jesus where he's just hanging out with his disciples and everything's very kumbaya and everyone's floating on clouds and it's this perfect situation. And we go, well, of course they could have followed Jesus. Of course they could have um, been obedient to the things he was saying or, or given their lives to him. It, it was so much easier for them. But actually, definitely not the case, right? We can so relate to what it means to be in a, a community or a context or a society that is in ideological and spiritual opposition to the things of Jesus. Now, we might not necessarily have a cave that's called the gates of hell, um, although in some regions, absolutely, you walk through cities and there are idols everywhere with people sacrificing things to all kinds of foreign gods. But we have all kinds of ideological and spiritual spaces that are set up in opposition to the things of God. In other words, we could say that we live in contested space. And uh, just to give you a heads up, we're going to use a little bit of C.S. Lewis in this uh, episode, so I hope that's okay for you. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this about this idea of being in contested space. He says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second, is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. <laughs> I wanted to include this idea because I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast, many of us are listening from sort of Western-influenced societies that are, whether we like it or not, quite naturalistic in their view. And so when we talk about putting Jesus at the center of our lives, most of us interpret that invitation purely through a sort of philosophical or moral lens. But I want to say to you that the Bible, the, the, the world of the Scriptures, the world that Jesus was in, the one that He teaches us in, was profoundly spiritual. Okay, And we live in contested space, uh, spiritually speaking. And this includes not just sort of the world at large, but it includes our minds and our lives. Uh, so when it comes to living this life that holds Jesus at the center, one of the things that we have to do, particularly in, in first world um, uh, Western um, sort of mind-centered spaces, we have to resist this temptation of uh, making a picnic in a war zone, <laughs> right? And so many of us in the Western world are prone to do this. Uh, we fall into this trap, uh, what, what C.S. Lewis again describes in the screw tape letters, of uh, he, he's writing to uh, Wormwood, which is like this demon in training. He says this. He says, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, now this is important, listen here. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts, <laughs> right? The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, 
and without signposts. Many of us would call ourselves Christians uh, and, and sincerely believe that, right? But, but we have an ad- adopted a posture that is like making a picnic in a war zone. And I want to just suggest to us that if we're going to make Jesus the center of our lives, we have to know that we are choosing to fight in the words of Paul. And that fight is not against only flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the unseen world. There is an opposition, an oppositional force. The Bible would talk about the devil or the enemy, which is this roaring lion, this this um, this being whose desire it is to bring you away from the things of God, to let you do anything but have Jesus at the center, right? And in this context, they're standing there in Caesarea Philippi at a, at a, at a demon worship site, at a pagan God worship site. And this is where Jesus is having this discourse, okay? And so when we look around at our world, we recognize that we're standing at the gates of hell ourselves, at the gates of Hades ourselves. And again, as I've just said, maybe not in uh, very obvious ways always, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, maybe some of the, these ways are more subtle, philosophical, ideological. But these things fill the air and they pour into our minds through all forms of technology. And these things, I would go as far as to say, are animated by competing powers and principalities which are contending for our attention, affection, and ultimately our lives. So all that to say, when we start this conversation of putting Jesus at the center of our lives and, and what it means for that, for that to be true in our community, one of the things we have to understand is that is not an uncontested decision. Okay, You don't just wake up and breeze into a Christ-centered life. And I, I don't say that to... Um, produce anxiety, I, I just say that for us to um, come back to reality. It's a kind of reality that we really do need, particularly in the Western world, because when it comes to keeping Jesus at the center of our lives, it helps to have a clear sense of where we are and what is getting in the way of our desire to follow Jesus. And honestly, friends, it would take a concerted effort of insulation and isolation Uh, from the prevailing culture for you to believe that we are not at least in part standing in some version of a Caesarea Philippi in the world at the moment. You know, without without making any too broad brushstroke claims here, society at large is in a very difficult and wounded place. And we have to ask ourselves, where do those woundings come from? Is this purely naturalistic? Or is there something else? Is Paul right? Are we not fighting just against flesh and blood, but are there powers and principalities uh, that are animating movements that would contend for the centrality of Christ in your life, in your family, in your society, in our world? It's good for us to know that we're in a war zone so that we don't position ourselves for a picnic. That would be the first thing I'd say. The second uh, issue that would be important to raise in terms of the context is not only the opposition of the context, but the confusion of the context. So we see here Jesus says to them, as he's standing here in Caesarea Philippi, and just imagine in this moment, what are they seeing? I, I don't know, but what are they seeing? What's happening at this kind of 
these gates of Hades, this place, uh, this worship center. Jesus says this. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And now just before I move on, this is, this is brilliant hyperlinking from Jesus. <laughs> okay, Jesus didn't just kind of make up this phrase for himself. Hmm, what should I call myself? I think we'll go with the Son of Man today. No, no, he is pulling from the Old Testament and pointing to the culmination of all things. And I'll give you an example of this in just a second. Uh, but what it is important to know here is that this phrase, the Son of Man, is the phrase that Jesus uses the most for himself in the Gospels. So when Jesus is describing who he is, when he's giving himself a title, the title he most uses is this title, the Son of Man. Now, why is that? What is he drawing from? What is he pointing to? Okay, let's look at what he's drawing from. If you go to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, 13 to 14, uh, Daniel has this vision, right? And in this vision, uh, this is what he sees. I'll just read it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he, the son of man, came to the ancient of days, to God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him, the son of man. His dominion, the son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. <laughs> okay, so here's Jesus constantly referring to himself as the Son of Man, now standing at a pagan worship site, which is contested ground spiritually, ideologically, culturally. And he is making a claim, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus is not confused about himself. He's, he's subtly and not so subtly making a declaration of his own authority in this space, drawing on the imagery from Daniel about this one who would be a Son of Man, who would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations, languages would serve him. And this dominion that he's given is an everlasting one which will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. In other words, he's looking at all of the stuff and he's going, you see all this? I am greater than all this. So Jesus is not confused about who he is. And he's not only pointing, uh, pulling from something in the past, he's also pointing to something in the future. Uh, when we read in Revelation chapter 14, right, and John is having this vision, and he says this, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. Isn't that interesting that in, in Daniel, behold, with the clouds of heaven, Okay, then in Revelation, there's a white cloud, hyperlink, double click. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold in, on his head and a sharp sickle in his hands. Uh, who wears crowns, right? Kings. <laughs> and sickle, obviously, a picture of judgment. So here's Jesus not only drawing from the past, but pointing to the future and locating himself as the individual that this is, this is talking about. And these are just two isolated verses, but you could look at the whole biblical, the scriptural narrative, and you will find the Son of Man imagery pushing through all of this. 
So, so here's Jesus. I just imagine him looking at his disciples. He's going, who do people say the Son of Man is? I wonder what that phrase would have done to them as they heard it in that moment in Caesarea Philippi. Just a question of wondering. So Jesus is not confused about who he is, right? It's almost like there's this defiant statement that's going on. But notice the response of the disciples. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So this is not necessarily to say that the disciples are confused in this moment, but it is to say that the people are confused. Society is confused. Then, uh, as with now, people weren't sure what to do with Jesus. And notice, these are not, um, these are not defamatory titles here. These are, uh, these are um, honorable titles, right? John the Baptist, one of the greatest and last of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah, man, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, so they're not saying Jesus is bad by any means. They're saying Jesus is, is great. But what they're not saying is Jesus is God. And this kind of confusion that was obviously prevalent at the time is the same kind of confusion that gets in the way of us putting Jesus at the center of our lives in the world today. Because people are happy to accept the teachings of Jesus, guys. Most people would agree that Jesus is wise, that he was a good man, that he's even someone we should aspire to be like. When it gets, when it gets difficult, when, when people struggle, is when we seem to say about Jesus the kinds of things he said about himself. <laughs> That's when the topic of Jesus and the person of Jesus becomes contentious. Now, when we're talking about putting Jesus at the very center of our lives, in other words, Christ becomes the fulcrum around which our whole world turns. If Jesus is just a John the Baptist or an Elijah or a Jeremiah or one of the prophets, there's no reason that we should build our whole lives around him. He, he doesn't then deserve the place to be center of our lives. But if he's more than that, if in his words he is in fact the son of man, the Messiah, the son of God, which we'll see in just a second, then of course he's a whole different prospect. And the challenge of this is, and this is why people push back often against this, is because there is a certain exclusivity and expectation that comes with a Jesus who is not just a good teacher, but actually God. And that is our point of resistance. We are happy to take his advice. We're happy to weigh it up in the context of other advice. What we're not happy to do is to enter into the exclusivity. Well, if he is God and the things he said about himself are true, well, then that's a pretty exclusive claim. And the expectation then, well, we have to then do something with that. And this is why we push back. And just like the crowds that these disciples are alluding to, we could say something like, well, he's a good teacher. He was a good moral leader. But this whole idea of him being God or the son of God, I'm not so sure about that. And in response to that, I would simply give you the words again of Uncle C.S. Lewis here. He says this, uh, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. People often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic <laughs> on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. So, you must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Listen carefully. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. (laughs) These two elements, the context of this passage and the initial confusion that opens it, speak not only to the cultural moment of this conversation, but speak to the cultural moment of our time as well. We live in a context uh, of, of opposition and confusion. Contested space uh, for your soul, <laughs> right? Animated by powers and principalities in the unseen world. And ideological and philosophical confusion around who this person of Jesus is. We can relate to this moment where Jesus is about to ask a very important question. And that brings us to the point of confrontation, right? So Jesus has heard this. Remember the context that he's standing in. And I can imagine in this moment, he, maybe a smile comes across his face, or maybe not. Maybe he stirs up a little. And maybe he leans in and kind of has eye contact with his disciples in this moment. And I can imagine him almost sort of eclipsing the stuff that's going on around them and within them. And he asked them this question that must have in this moment shook them. I would imagine, right, like there's, this, there's all of this stuff going around in these gates of Hades here in Caesarea Philippi. There's this, this question of, well, who have people say that I am? Jesus just called himself the son of man in this moment. We're pulling all kinds of cultural trigger points. And then Jesus looks them dead in the eye and he says this, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If we want to be a people who hold Jesus at the center of our lives and our communities, a follower wants to be a space where Jesus is really at the center, this is really the question that matters most. And and it's a confronting question. It's an unsettling question. But it's a question that nobody else can answer for you but you. (laughs) Right? Uh, Jesus is speaking to the people of Israel. He's like, man, I can raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks. Right? In, in other words, don't, don't think this is just about what you have inherited from your parents. I speak to a lot of people like this who are very well-intentioned, and I would ask them about their relationship with Jesus, and they haven't settled this in themselves. They haven't had that moment where Christ locks eyes with them and asks them the question, who do you say that I am? In some ways, they're still trading off the faith of their parents or their parents' parents. And there's kind of a tradition that's been passed down, but it's not animated by a personal revelation, which we'll get to in just a second. And so this is the question that we face, guys. And it's the question that the Lord is asking you. Jesus looks at you, even as you listen to this. He looks you dead in the eye and he says to you, hey man, who do you say that I am? And and it, and because it's uncomfortable and, and confronting and and because it's revealing, we can sometimes we can push it off, right? We can sort of deflect it and delay it for another time. But I want to suggest to you that this question is a ceiling 
to our journey with God. And until we face it, we won't be able to make progress past it to what lies on the other side. And so really the question is there for you and it's there for me. In the context of opposition and confusion, Jesus is not intimidated by these things and he's not swayed by them either. He looks you dead in the eye. He looks me dead in the eye. And he says, okay, but, but who do you say that I am? Not who do your friends say that I am? Not who does your church say that I am? Not who do your parents say that I am? Not who does your family say that I am? Not who does your husband or your wife say that I am? Or your kids say that I am? Or your boss? Or, or Not who does the guy on TV or the follower podcast dude say that I am? Hey, who do you say that I am? And this is a key question. And it might even do you good to pause this podcast and spend some time with that question. And that question then, of course, stirs the disciples <laughs> and leads to a declaration. And this declaration is critical and important. Uh, I imagine the disciples sort of standing silent, looking at one another, you know, almost like children, <laughs> as the intensity of the moment is kind of weighing on them. I imagine them looking to the left and the right, or who's going to say something? And then I imagine Peter in his very classically Peter way, opening his mouth before he even knows what's actually going to come out of it. And here are these words, and he's like, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I wonder if there's like a silence that hushes over them as those words come out. I wonder if maybe Peter puts his hand over his mouth, wide-eyed, amazed at what he has just said. Maybe the air got thin for a moment, and Jesus just let that phrase hang in front of them. And then maybe after a moment, I, I imagine a smile kind of breaking across Jesus' face and his kind eye staring back at his overzealous disciple, Peter, and these words coming out of his mouth, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This is a key phrase here, guys. Because Jesus asks us that question, right? Who do you say that I am? And then there is this declaration that comes pouring out of the mouth of Peter. But here is the key thing. Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, what we're looking for here is not just information, but revelation. I, I would say, that, you know, when I imagine follower tables and the different people who are going to sit around these tables, when I imagine the church of Jesus, when I imagine you listening to this podcast, I imagine people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all different life stories, all different cultures, even maybe different theological perspectives and some ideas. But what I, what I do imagine in all of that diversity is a unity around the revelation of Christ. I would imagine that when we look into one another's eyes across those tables, we see the same fire burning. 
right? This is beyond just an idea that you got from somebody else. It's beyond just a Bible verse maybe that you memorized or what your Sunday school teacher told you to say. You've had a revelation that's been given to you by the Father. And in that revelation is the blessing of God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Insert your name there. For this revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was not given to you by flesh. You didn't muster this up in your own strength. But this has been supernaturally poured out into you by the Father in heaven. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you've had that revelation. <laughs> right? What I'm saying, friends, is that Jesus can't only be the center of our lives philosophically or ideologically. He must be the center of our lives experientially. And I'm not, I'm not making a case for some kind of emotionalism or hype. I am simply stating the obvious facts presented to us by Scripture, which is to say that what God wants to do to, in us and through us is supernatural regeneration of the human heart, right? He wants to resuscitate dead people. And that doesn't come just by reading a lot of books or listening to a lot of podcasts. That comes through a supernatural revelation that gets poured into us by the Father. That's the motivation. That's how we keep Jesus at the center of our lives. And listen, just after Peter said this, a couple of verses later, he goes on to stand in the way of the things of God and he gets told by Jesus to, I quote, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I take such great comfort in that because this is not just a one-time deal, right? We don't just have the revelation, make the declaration, and then we're sorted for the rest of our lives. Man, we will stumble and fall in this journey of following Jesus. Some days he'll be more at the center of our lives than others. But what I am arguing for, what I'm what I'm imploring us into is a faith that means something, a faith that's born out of revelation, not just secondhand information, a faith that has said Christ is not just Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. No, no, no. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And because that is true, there's nothing more important in life than Him. That's the case I'm making. And I wonder if you've had that moment. I wonder if you've had that moment in the midst of ideological and spiritual opposition and confusion that, that dominates the, the, the day of, that we're in right now, our age. If you've stood in the midst of all of it and just for a second shut it all down, made eye contact with your Creator and heard Him ask you, who do you say that I am? And then by the grace of God, there has been an outpouring of the Spirit and and what has flowed up from within you, what, have you, what you have believed in your heart and therefore confessed with your mouth is that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Son of the living God. And then this isn't just about you, right? Because what I love about this is that this declaration, this revelation that leads to a declaration, moves into a commissioning. Uh, Jesus says it this way. He says, uh, This has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. 
verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. So I love how there's a new name that comes out of this revelation. That's just a thought for you there. Uh, it reminds me of when uh, Isaac is wrestling with the angel who is a Christophany, a sort of pre-picture of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. And in this wrestling, uh, there's a, you know, I won't leave until you bless me. And then there's the touching of the hip and the giving of a new name. Now you are Israel. So names were really important in the biblical culture. And so here's this moment of Jesus giving him this name, Peter, which means rock. And then on this rock, I will build my church. Now there's some discrepancy, different theological streams. Some people think that Jesus is referring to Peter as the rock. Other people think that Jesus is referring to the revelation of the Christ as the rock of the church. Either way you cut it, this is a significant moment, and it's necessary as a foundation of the thing that Jesus would do. And what's really interesting is that this is the first mentioning of the word church in the New Testament. And then there, standing at the gates of Hades in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says this, On this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell, <laughs> of Hades, will not overcome it. I wonder if you could have heard a pin drop in that moment. What is Jesus saying here, friends? He's saying, man, my conviction is on this revelation, on this supernaturally given revelation by the Father that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build a people who are going to attack the very gates of Hades and the gates of Hades will not be able to resist it. And as he's saying this moment, as he's saying this in this moment, he's standing in front of a pagan worship site. Could there be anything more Banksy than that? Jesus is the ultimate performance artist. This is so powerful, right? This matters for us as the church because to keep Jesus at the center of our lives, guys, we have to recognize what the church was made for. We weren't made to be in a defensive position hiding away in a corner while the world falls apart. Nobody uses gates as an offensive weapon. People don't take their gates to war. <laughs> People use gates as a defensive measure. We lock our gates to keep attackers out. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, man, on this very rock of this revelation, in this very place, where we can see these, this pagan worship and this, this contested space. I'm going to build a people who will attack the things of darkness and the best defense of the darkness will not be able to overcome the attack, the onslaught of this army of people who will invade the darkness and bring light. That's the posture of this church that Jesus is building. That's what it means for us to keep Jesus at the center of our lives, at the center of our communities. We are given this ministry of reconciliation to be ambassadors of God, right? To be agents sent from one kingdom into another kingdom to declare a message. That's this picture. And then Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here's Jesus mirroring Matthew 28. Uh, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Or in Revelation chapter 1, he touches uh, John as John falls dead. His feet. He says, man, don't be afraid. I have the keys uh, of, of life in Hades, right? So, so Jesus is talking about this church that's going, that's going to 
overwhelm the defensive measures of of hell and bring the light of the kingdom there. And he's saying the reason you can do that is because there's an authority that I have been given that I now give to you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Right? So we get built on the authority of Jesus. We can't be the church if Jesus is not in the center of our communities because we're not trading on our authority. We're trading on His. We're not moving in our power. We're moving in His. And so the centrality of Jesus, it doesn't only matter for your life. It matters for what will happen through your life and in the communities that you're a part of and what will happen through those communities in the world that we're called to serve. When we talk about Jesus being at the center of our story, what it means to be a Jesus-centered community, this passage is what we're talking about. We recognize that now and possibly increasingly into the future, the church of Jesus, the community of follower, all followers of Jesus, will exist in increasingly contested and confused space. That is just going to be the norm. The age of Christendom is passing away, particularly in the Western world, and it's going to cost people to follow Jesus. And if you, if you haven't seen that yet, I would just encourage you to like turn on the news or look around. Or There's an excellent podcast called Rebuilders, Mark Sayers. Helpful, helpful stuff. But you know, anywhere you look right now, you can see we're in contested and confused space around the things of the kingdom. And so that's not just a new thing. That's kind of always been the case. But I do think my assumption, this is just my, my thoughts, is as we move into the future, we're probably going to see that increase contested and confused space around the things of the kingdom. And in the midst of that, remember, God doesn't pull us out. Jesus didn't take his disciples on a picnic to an idyllic spot. He took them to Caesarea Philippi in the gates of hell, (laughs) right right into the hotbed of contested space. So Jesus doesn't remove us from the world. Even in John, when he's praying at the end, that high priestly prayer, he says, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I just pray that you would strengthen them in it, make them one in that place, right? So in the middle of this world that is both contested and confused, Jesus looks at you daily. And I do think it's a daily conversation to have with the Lord. And he says to you, hey, hey man, who do you say that I am? And what we want in our lives, friends, if Jesus is going to be the center, is we want to seek the Father for the revelation that comes from heaven that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because built on that revelation is the blessing of God for our lives and the power of God for his church, right? And so because we want to be both abiding in the vine and producing fruit for the kingdom, it's essential that at the center of that narrative is the the declaration of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God that comes to us through a revelation, through experiential, um, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart, life-to-life time with Jesus. This is what we mean when we talk about Jesus being at the center. I'm aware, as, as you listen to this podcast, it's probably a little bit more intense than some of the other podcasts that you've listened to in this series, and even on the follower podcast, it's a little bit more blunt, it's a little bit more weighted. I'm intentionally a bit passionate here. The reason for that, friends, is because I believe this is a fulcrum issue. I believe this is a hinge point issue for you and I in our following of Jesus and for the the follower community and for the church at large. And I think, um, as I observe, I think this is one of those areas where maybe 
in the words of C.S., we've, we've quietly drifted away from this. We've quietly started building picnics in a war zone. And we would say that Jesus is still Lord, but I'm not so sure we're living in the vital, humming revelation of that truth. And I think we need to come back to that place. We need to petition the Father again for that revelation of who He is, that our eyes would be open constantly to the beauty, to the glory, to the centrality of Christ. I think it's vital not only for your faith as an individual, but for the vitality of the church at large and certainly for the follower community. So uh, that's what we mean when we talk about Jesus being at the center. And this is what we're hoping will kind of fill the atmosphere whenever we gather around follower tables or whenever you experience a follower resource or some kind of follower gathering, even either online or in person. And we pray that this is one of the ways we would serve the church as we serve in different capacities to help the church be all that it can be in our little part of doing that. We hope one of the, one of the ingredients we'll bring to that, bring to that space is a, is a fresh revelation of the centrality of Jesus uh, in our lives and in our communities. That's all for this episode. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a fully surrendered community. In other words, when Jesus is at the center of our lives, how do we respond to that? What happens next? And so uh, looking forward to that. I hope this was helpful for you. As always, if you enjoyed this, if you found this helpful, if you'd like other people to hear it, please share it. Please leave reviews, guys. It helps so much when you leave reviews on the podcast. Um, and give us a like, share it on your social media platforms, all those kinds of things. And then if you have any questions or thoughts that you'd like to share, just get a hold of us. You can get a hold of us on social media, uh, or you can uh, connect with us through the follower website at www.wearefollower.com. That's all for this episode, and we'll chat to you on the next episode of The Follower Podcast. That's all for this episode of The Follower Podcast. If you found it helpful or inspiring, please consider sharing it and leaving a review on your podcast platform to help us connect with more people around the world. If you would like to support the Ministry of Follower with a monthly contribution or one-off donation, you can visit www.wearefollower.com forward slash support. And to say thank you, we'll send you a free copy of Live the Story, an ebook that helps you learn to share your faith with others. Until next time. May you follow Jesus to the depths of his heart as he helps you share his love wherever you go. From the ground beneath your feet to the very ends of the earth.